You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 275 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. A few years ago, in episode 149, I had a guest on the podcast called Dominic Milton Trott. He had written a book that presents the hidden truth about drugs, something which touches the lives of almost everyone. And the book uh, cuts through the noise and misinformation of the war on drugs, and it documents the facts about the individual drugs and the subject in general. The first version of this book was titled The Honest Drug Book, Given its success and its positive reception amongst drug users, it was extended in both content and scope to become the drug user's bible. Dominic Milton Trott self-administered over 150 chemicals and botanicals. For each of these he documented the vital safety data inclusive of dose thresholds, onset times and duration. In addition he recorded a trip report a subjective analysis of his qualitative experience, usually at different time checks. Here he is again. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and and what you do? Okay, yeah, I'm the author of the Drug Users Bible. Um, It's a book on harm reduction, which is basically for people who choose to take drugs. Uh, to ensure they've got safety information, all the information on the drug that they actually need to stay alive. And uh, it was published under a different title in 2017, the Honest Drug Book. And in 2019, it was up- upgraded with 17 extra drugs and a, a much larger s- uh, final section on drug users' welfare as the Drug Users' Bible. Um, and it's... Uh, it's quite well known now and hopefully it's, uh, it's having an impact and potentially saving some lives. Right, well, I missed one thing out. I took 157 drugs, chemicals and plants myself to test the drugs and to be able to report and write about them. That's uh, that's quite an important difference to most, to most books. So why did you change the name? Um, because when the first book was published, I, I felt... Uh, and I discussed with this with a lot of people. I felt that the honest drug book was was descriptive of the fact that it was honest. We're living in times of of uh, constant propaganda and myth and hostility to to drugs and drug users. Um, and one of the major features of the the book was always got to be that it was presented factual, scientific, inf- as, as far as possible, information on doses, thresholds, onset times and everything about the drugs. Uh, and also it was an honest reflection uh, of my experiences with the drug, of it, with, with each drug after half an hour, an hour, three hours, etc. Uh, so it felt an honest drug book. The honest drug book is a really good title because in times of uh, mass hysteria and propaganda, honesty is in short supply. Now, that's fine, but as the time passed and the book was published, um, it became, you know, people kept stating it as, as sort of feedback in, on forums and, and even journalists were calling it, oh, it's a safety Bible. So this this sort of 
uh, implication that it was wide in scope and it covered everything you needed to know about drugs if you were a user. Sort of uh, took hold to some degree and there was references uh, quite frequently of it being a safety bible and that sort of stuck and, and, and I really liked the idea of, of indicating that you know basically it, it isn't just a narrow book on one particular facet of, of drugs although it's harm reduction it, it covers safety but there's also welfare uh, in terms of legal information uh, nasal care what to, what to do if uh, you know in various situations uh, drug tourism uh, and so on and so forth general welfare of drug users and not just safety so the scope was increasing and eventually we came to the point where I felt and other people felt that well maybe the drug users Bible is a better better title to to go with the the upgraded the bigger edition than the original honest drug book and after a bit of market research it, it, it did turn out to that most people felt the same way so that's what uh, what we went with I mean when you're a teenager the only drug experience you usually have at least in the beginning is cannabis and when you get in contact with these pamphlets that the government hands out and you read about cannabis uh, you can't see the reality in those pamphlets because they s- describe what cannabis does to you uh, in in a way that you can not uh, connect with what you've experienced yourself so you that's why I, I did at least dismiss all the other information about all the other drugs I hadn't taken because if all the if there was only lies about cannabis how can I trust anything else that's absolutely correct and and I think that's uh, that's most people's experience that uh, it's pretty self-evident uh, that the government and the authorities lie like hell about drugs and uh, you only need to actually look on the streets of any major city to see the damage that uh, a a strong addictive drug like alcohol causes Uh, yet a drug like cannabis which doesn't kill anybody uh, is is bombarded with adverse publicity and and lies and propaganda Uh, and you know any youngster anyone new to you know, the Western drug situation will immediately understand that, you know, these guys are lying and we can't actually believe a word they're saying about any drugs. You know, are they lying about heroin too? Are they lying about crystal meth? Because they're lying about cannabis. Why, how, how can we possibly believe uh, anything that they're saying? And that was one of the drivers for the original title, the, the Honest Drug Book, because there was absolutely no honesty uh, coming from official sources and from governments uh, law enforcement, uh, the media, mainstream media generally. Uh, so that was a driver for the Honest Drug Book, and it was a driver for the writing of the book because, you know, it, it is com- confusing. I mean, there's a void. You know, if you're young and you've got absolutely no experience of drugs uh, and you're starting to use drugs, there's a there's an information void, uh, which is disastrous. You know, I've got a little sort of saying of uh, ignorance kills education saves lives and I think that's absolutely true um, one of the objectives of the book was to was to fill that void and to fill it with with truth uh, and not propaganda of any form uh, and so that's why the original title was the honest drug book and, and it's obviously applies to the drug users Bible 
uh, as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think I said uh, a number of times that I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't have really had to write a book like this. I mean, it took 10 years. I used 157 drugs and it took a long time, but that's not the reason. It should have already been there. It should have been provided all this information by governments um, and by institutions. You know, they should be providing this information to, to the public and to the population to ensure that they're not approaching drug use from a position of, of almost total ignorance. But they haven't, uh, and it's not there, and there's enormous gaps. Uh, and that's one of the main reasons I wrote the book, to actually fill the void so that people could pick up a piece of paper, a book, turn the pages, and find the safety information that they actually need to mitigate risk. I shouldn't have had to do it. I have had to do it, and that's why the book actually exists. Do you have any side effects from trying all these drugs now? Physically, um, no. Um, as far as I'm aware, I'm, I'm, I'm very healthy for my age, uh, and I don't feel any any you know that I've got any problems. And uh, mentally, in terms of my work how I think and, and, and my perspectives, I, I have changed, uh, I, I think for the better, uh, as a result of uh, having had, what, 30 or 40 different psych, uh, psychedelic drugs. Uh, and I think that's, you know, people take psychedelics often uh, to uh, enhance their consciousness and to uh, to gain greater awareness and, and all sorts of positive reasons like that. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I have actually benefited in those ways. It's not a myth, uh, the, these suggestions. And, and, and they can resolve issues around depression and so forth. Uh, they're, they're not myths, that's a reality. And I think I have changed, but in a positive sense, uh, in terms of my psychology and my, my outlook. Uh, my perspectives. Was there any of the drugs you tried that you felt like you could get addicted to it or that you felt it was uh, really dangerous? Uh, I was subjected to the same propaganda as everybody else. So when, when, I, when I tried heroin and, and methamphetamine and so forth, yeah, I was, I was a, a little bit nervous, but not not that nervous because I'd, by that time I'd had a lot of faith in the procedures I was using for safety, which is documented in the book. So I believed in what I was writing and, and these safety measures were, were, were going to take me through, and they did. Um, in terms of addiction, I'm really the only, the, only, the only drug I've ever really thought I was going to be addicted to, I could be addicted to, was alcohol uh, because... Like everybody else in this culture, I drank often and I drank a lot. Uh, that stopped with the drug use because I learned to see alcohol as every as just another drug, and apply the same sort of measures to that as I do to other drugs. The only other drug that I felt could have been problematic was methamphetamine, which is crystal meth, or some people call it ice. Um, And I knew that was an addictive drug. And one of the safety measures that I have in, 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 the, uh, in the front of the book is, uh, is to basically only have available the maximum 
that you as the user are prepared to take in that session and no more and make that decision prior to being under the influence of the drug. Now with uh, methamphetamine, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd acquired 100 uh, milligrams, which is quite a lot, for, certainly for a first time, but that was the lid. And I'd set out to have half of that. And what I quickly discovered was that uh, once I'd started uh, snorting this stuff in 10 milligram lines, I couldn't stop. Uh, it wasn't one after another in five, five seconds, really. It was, you know, maybe half an hour, 20 minutes, I'd have another line, then another line, and then another line. And the problem is that I would have continued doing that if I'd have had 200 milligrams available, 500 milligrams available, a gram. I'd, I'd, I would have really, I don't really think I would have stopped because it was, the, the high was was indescribably good it was it was an absolutely awesome feeling uh but um and i make this point for for actually most drugs outside the psych psychedelic realm uh there's always a a payback uh and with uh methamphetamine the the payback over the subsequent on the next day and subsequent days was severe uh and more than severe I think I used the term the day after for the day afterwards. I felt like a, a car that had had its engine oil stripped out of it. I was sort of could feel my brain clunky and, and and I was just I had no enthusiasm for anything whatsoever. I was just sort of existing. And that went on. You know, the day after I was sort of just existing and I was getting no pleasure from anything and the day after that. And it took quite a long time before I started deriving pleasure and fun out of norm, the normal events of life. Uh, so, you know, that was a bit of a, you know, the two things there were, were well, three things that were a surprise. One was the how how high the high was. Two, two was that the low was incredibly low and long and the high wasn't worth it. Um, and the three was the, uh, the urge to compulsively redose was stronger than anything that I've encountered. Uh, so yeah, that that is that is uh, you know probably the most uh, the, the biggest risk in terms of a drug that I encountered in terms of becoming addicted to it. What was it that felt so good? It was a. I mean, I, I described this in 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 terms of uh, a comparison with heroin. Because uh, a lot of people, you know, say heroin's a, a you know very, very, very a high. I don't think heroin is a high. It's a bit euphoric, but uh, heroin is like a, a comfort bubble, and and I think you know there's a reflection on the type of people who get addicted to each of these two drugs. Heroin is like it, it's it makes you it sedates you. It makes you feel with that you know problems aren't important. It takes the rough edges off life. And you can sort of breeze through on this sort of semi-elation, um, and and it's it's nice. Uh, the problem is with heroin, of course, is when you've when you come down, the problems are still there, and you, you tend to. I mean, this is a you know, broad, uh, broad brush de uh, description, but quite often it's people with issues and problems in their life that get addicted to heroin because it sort of resolves them uh, temporarily. Crystal meth 
is not like that at all. Our problems disappear. They disappear because you're just deriving fun and pleasure from everything inside. Uh, you can focus on things and actually get get reward from menial tasks almost as dopamine starts to flow and serotonin and, and it just feels fantastic and you feel stimulant so you've got tons of energy and you're wired um, and you know people use it for all sorts of people use it you know, it's one of the major possibly the major chemsex drug because you know if it's combined with sexual activity the you can reach a height that is just unattainable without the drug now that carries all sorts of problems uh, for relationships because you cannot reach that height ever again in your life without the drug uh, so there's a whole host of issues that can result from that sort of in that sort of direction but it's simply because Dopamine and serotonin are being produced at such levels that you're deriving heightened pleasure, ridiculously heightened pleasure, uh, from everything that you're doing almost. And, of course, you're, you're not tired. You, you, you're stimulated all the time. So it goes on and on and on and on and on until eventually, you know, you can go on no longer. Uh, so it's that sort of high as opposed to sort of just being in bliss, you're not in, in sort of a, a blissful comfort sort of state. You're, you, you tend to be in a sort of fired up, wired, energetic, everything's great sort of uh, state. Uh, and, uh, and it's a wonderful state, uh, but the actual cost of it is, 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 is full plus interest. It's, it's higher. Because it doesn't just give you a day's hangover, it, it it lasts a long time. And if you keep repeating the uh, the methamphetamine experience, it can last years. And some people never get out of it and and end up killing themselves or 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 dying through their uh, addiction. What I think is scary are the pharmaceutical drugs, because like it's getting there in Europe as well, but America has gone further with it, where like. Almost every housewife or uh, the men also, of course, but uh, it's the stereotypical image of the housewife taking a pill in the morning, a pill at lunch and another one that's during the evening. But basically these pills are, are these other drugs, but with other names and they're basically junkies, but it's respectable. It's almost like... Uh, in, in American culture, it's almost like, why are you not having any pills? Like, it's almost like strange to not have. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that primarily, I mean, I think it's Xanax is the most prescribed medication in the US, which is diazepam in Europe or Valium. And and it's again, it's, it has similarities to, to opioids in, in that it, it sort of removes the rough edges and the sort of anxieties uh, of life. Uh, but it's temporary because you know when you stop, when it wears off, you they, they return, and uh, you know, as as, uh, as you well know, you know millions of people become addicted to these to these uh, these drugs and sedatives, which is great for pharmaceutical companies, but not 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 too good for humanity. My wife had a period of depression, and her doctor gave her one of those pills. I don't know what, which one it was. And she tried it only once and she never tried it again because she got the feeling that 
She didn't care about anything and she was in the shower and she thought she, there was a razor blade there and she thought, well, I could just cut myself. Uh, I mean, it can't be that bad. Who cares? I mean, she became almost like a s- psychopath and it scared her so much that she decided to solve the depression with more o- other natural means, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, they do. They, they just take, the, you know, the fears and the, the anxieties. The, the, the sort of emotions that drive people to actually produce, do things, you know, it's 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 uh, it's not a good way forward. And especially when you've got ketamine or, or um, psychedelics available to treat depression. Um, I think the other day I was speaking, last time I spoke to you was I gave a, a metaphor which which embraced how psychedelics can cure depression for so many people. Life is like a train. Uh, you're sitting on a train and you're going from from the start of your life to the end destination uh, on the train. You're living your life on a train, looking through the window, performing your functions, but you're on a train going forward through life. And most people go through that and they start at the first station and death is on the station. What a psychedelic does um, is it's like stopping that train at a, a station and you get off the train if you've had a psychedelic and you, you look at the train from the outside and then you get back on the train again and proceed. Now, anyone who's done that in this sort of metaphorical um universe that I'm describing on the train. Anyone who's done that is never going to see the train uh, in the same way again. He's not going to see it, he or she is not going to see it in the same way as the rest of the passengers because they've had a different perspective, an out-of-body perspective, an out-of-reality perspective, if you like, and come back into the normal perspective and the normal reality that we all share. Um, now, the effects of that on the individual, okay, the, you could argue there's a minor degree of uh, alienation because you're seeing things slightly differently to everybody else. But for me at least, and I think this is this touches on the depression uh, aspect of it, for me at least, once I'd had the psychedelic experience, the things that used to bother me so much uh, in life were, were, were sort of uh, more manageable. It wasn't like being sedated and nothing matters and new care. It was, I was able to sort of take up several perspectives of the problem and not become transfixed and, or with a, a single perspective of the problem. Uh, and that helped me, you know, when, when I've had issues in recent years, I've handled them more in, in a lot in a lot better manner than I would have done earlier before the psychedelic experiences because I've not I've not let them get on top of me. I've been able to manage them from from above, if you like. Um, so, you know that, that that's in my opinion at least one of the re- one of the reasons psychi- uh, psychedelics and, and, and maybe ketamine uh, are so valuable to the people who use them. And that's why they should be used to treat depression rather than drugging people up with a sedative so that nothing matters to them and they float through the life without experiencing it properly. Um, and of course, it's also because of the war on drugs and, and the dominance of, uh, of, of the big drug companies. Of all the drugs you tested, 
Is there any of the drugs that you know that you will go back to throughout your life? Uh, yes, I, I, I will. You know, I mean, a question people normally ask is, uh, "What drugs do you take?" Because the because I've got 157 drugs. There's an assumption there that I take drugs all the time, and I'm a I'm a drug guy and I'm a drug user. But that's actually not true. I don't. But I rarely take drugs. Uh, but when I do, and it's it's usually when I'm travelling. Uh, which is quite a few times a year, to be fair. Uh, I would use a psychedelic. Uh, it depends where I'm going to. Perhaps if I'm going to Amsterdam, I would probably have uh, magic truffles, which is psilocybin uh, mushrooms. Uh, or I would have LSD uh, in, in various parts of the world. Cannabis I would uh, I would possibly have. But a bit very, very sort of maybe some mild stimulants here and there, better or not if I'm Southeast Asia. Um, but I'm very, you know, careful about, I'm very selective uh, in terms of drugs because uh, one of the little ones, one page at the front of the, 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 the book in the first section, it says, what, what goes up must come down. Uh, and what that's what that shows, what that states, basically the graph is that, you know, again setting taking psychedelics out of this because they're they're different. For, for the other drugs, the sedatives, the opioids, the stimulants, and so forth, you tend to have an up, an incline, and a high. Then you have a low, and the low can last a long time. And what I found is, is I, I as, as I gained experience and I got older, I'd, I'd sort of compare the high and the low. And think well, is it worth you know take alcohol? You know, is, is it worth three or four hours of, uh, of of being high on and sedated on alcohol for the next day, feeling below par and not very well, especially if I had a lot to drink, and maybe the day after, and you sort of look at well, that's three two days uh, not not being absolutely normal for for three or four hours. Isn't a good trade. So I've tended to take that perspective but probably because of uh, also because i'm a bit not just the drug drug use but because of my age and and that sort of stops me having drugs like you know i don't regularly have cocaine i don't regularly you know uh, but because it's 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 sort of for me it's, it's 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 a sort of balance of you know is it really worth it probably not uh so i, I, t- I stick to a few psychedelics um, and a few specialist drugs, which I will have depending on where I'm traveling to at any particular time. Except for alcohol, which I stopped using 20 years ago because I didn't like the day after. The only drugs I do use uh, on occasion are the ones that have no effect when it wears off, like more of almost like the opposite effect that you feel refreshed. Uh, I prefer those. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, that's basically psychedelics and perhaps cannabis, and there are a few others, but not many, uh, because your body's trying to tell you something. I mean, you know, again, it's a more recent perspective. I thought that, you know, if you're feeling bad uh, and not well and under par after you've used a drug, uh, especially if you're feeling really bad or in a really bad angle, well, your body's trying to actually give you a message there, isn't it? It's trying to say, what the hell are you doing to me? Uh, stop. 
Um, and now that doesn't happen with most psychedelics. Um, it, it, you're right, you, you do feel refreshed, like almost like a reset. Uh, and uh, you know that's why those are the, tend to be the drugs that that I would still use, as opposed to the ones that uh, provide uh, a negative payload. Was there any of the drugs you you tried for the book that was really hard to get hold of? Yes, uh, there were quite a few that were were were, were really difficult, and, and you know I had to travel uh, extensively for to get some of them. Um, and uh, just give one example would be would be I mentioned Bessel Nut. Uh, uh, this is a sort of it's a, it's 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 a, it's a nut. There's a there's le- there's um, betel leaves. There's uh, there's some sort of MAOI there, lime in in a little package that they make in certain countries of the world, and you chew on it, and it's like like a stimulant. It's not half, it's stronger than coffee. It's this tobacco and it gives you a buzz as well. Uh, so there's slight, slightly different flavours of this, this sort of betel nut. And I imported some nuts and they were like concrete. You know, the chances of me knowing and chewing on them and trying to get a, some effect of them were absolutely zero. I did this twice and, you know, I couldn't even break them with an hammer. A hammer. So uh, I ended up going to Myanmar in, or Burma in Southeast Asia and I, I had it there. Uh, for the first time, then, then of course, I kept running into it in different countries. Would you believe? Uh, and uh, I did it a few other times. So yeah, I, I travelled a lot. Um, I was lucky in that when I wrote the book was pre the first version of the book was pre 2016, and that's that's a critical date in this country because uh, at that point in time, all the legal highs became illegal. And it became illegal to import botanicals. So up until that date, I could import any any psychoactive plant into this country, into my house, other than the ones that were specifically scheduled and classified, like cannabis and kraton. All the others I could, or opium, all the others I could bring bring in. And uh, the chemicals, uh, they they were named as illegal. You know, heroin crystal meth, amphetamine, cocaine, they were actually named in legislation. So all the research chemicals and the ones that I could actually get hold of on, on the internet, and online, the open web, not the dark web, order these things and they'd be delivered to me, to, to my house the next day usually. So, you know, most of the drugs were easily obtainable at that point. So I got them all and then went, went through them. Uh, but the ones that were scheduled were harder because I couldn't just, you know, and I didn't want the police to come knocking on my door to take me away. So so I had to travel quite a lot and it took a lot of time and money to do it. But eventually I got all the drugs that I, I set out to actually uh, test and, to, and sample. But it took a lot of effort, a lot of money and a lot of travel. You tried over 150 drugs, but how many drugs are there really? Uh, there are an infinite number, I would guess. I mean, there is an infinite number, but there are thousands and thousands of them. But uh, most of them are just not uh, synthesized. And uh, yeah, I, I'll explain why. I mean, can- cannabinoids are a, a good example of how this, this sort of worked. I mean, first of all, there would be a molecule, a drug 
created in a lab and it would be psychoactive. It would be made illegal and named in in in, uh, in, in uh, laws of uh, of the land and, and no longer legal to use or possess. So the lab would make a tiny little change, maybe add a little stick onto something here, and be and it would be slightly different. So it would be a different drug. So that would be made illegal, uh, and then they do the same again. So you know, theoretically, there are there are thousands of drugs that could exist. And there are a lot of drugs that did exist and no longer exist because it's no longer cost effective to actually produce them and try to sell them. So there are an infinite, almost an infinite number as far as the man in the street's concerned, but there are only a small number, hundreds, that are actually used in at least regularly in parts of the world. And I, I, I identified probably around 100 that were were actually in active use and others that had been or could or or were used in just this area of the world and and, um, and I got up to 157 eventually but I'd, I, and I felt when I got to this number that actually got pretty much all the drugs that people were likely to encounter in their in their lives uh, but I mean that was another reason why I had to uh, extend the book because I've done 140 for the uh, the honest drug book and then I found a handful that I really felt I hadn't included for good reasons but, but, but reflection they should be in there uh, and and then I, I added a few more ended up adding 17 to the to the uh, drug users Bible um, and I, I did think long and hard about you know have I done it have I Am I going to pub, have this published? Is this going to be published? And then a week later, I'm going to think, oh, no, I should have included this drug. Uh, so I waited a while and really worked on, and, and that's not happened. So I think I've got the pretty much, I'm pretty much there in terms of uh, of the drugs that are in, in use around across the world. Was there any of the drugs you tried that... Uh made you scared for your life yeah um i've had some pretty traumatic experiences probably half a dozen uh in which i've really been terrified and thought that i might have serious problem and in some cases i might never return to normal and in some cases am i going to die have i really done it this time um I, i think uh, I'll, I'll just cite a couple of examples. Uh, the first one that went badly wrong was was nutmeg, which is a, a spice, uh, and I'd read in a small book by Adam Gottlieb, a uh, tiny little book that it, it was psychoactive, so I decided to eat some. And uh, I went to bed without any effect, thinking it was a dud. And about three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I was ill. My head was spinning. I felt sick, but I couldn't be sick. I felt like uh, I was I was going to die. And, and I tried to get to the toilet, and I was I was I was delirious. I was putting my hands on the on the wooden floor, and it was sinking in like treacle, like glue, and it it was horrific. And and the illness lasted. A few days. I mean, the next morning I just felt like terror. The mother of all hangovers, and the day after I felt ill, 
Uh, but I recovered. Um, what I had was a delirium, um, which is not a psychedelic. Uh, had these horrible hallucinations, and I poisoned myself. I mean, delirium's are poisoned, and people play with with nutmeg and datura is, is the other uh, well-known one without actually understanding that delirium is is a you know a lot of medical practitioners consider it to, to be close to death it's a, it's a status close to death um and it's just not something to to actually engage with but i did and that was really, really when i was about 21 22 many years ago and i got away with that um more recently, during the writing of the book, I had a couple of experiences. Um, I had one with tobacco. With this, this, I, I went to Vietnam and I was in Hanoi walking down the streets and it was impossible not to notice guys smoking bamboo pipes. And I had this idea that it was this form of tobacco that's used in Brazil, in the Amazon, called mapacho. So I decided to ask, can I have a go? Uh, and they sat, they sat me down rather than stand up and say, sit down. They wouldn't take any money for this. <laughs> so I took this, I took a photograph of the packet so I could identify it subsequently at the hotel. hotel. So I took this big talk on this bond and immediately I knew I was in trouble. I, uh, my head was sort of like, I remember thinking it, it felt like it, it was a toxic chemical. It felt so artificial. You know, this is a plant. It didn't feel like my plant. I felt artificial, and it felt like I'd sort of sucked the uh, an exhaust pipe on a, a car or something like that. And I was sort of nearly passing out, and I was sort of breathing and gasping for my breaths. Um, and this lasted five or ten minutes, uh, before eventually I was able to sort of bravely toddle off and pretend... I was okay, so I, guess, so I didn't embarrass myself too much and got round the corner and there I was again, panting for breath. Eventually, I, I recovered and I had this sort of clarity with it, and, and uh, which is probably why they're smoking. And what a mistake I've made there was uh, these guys have got these habits and uh, they, they'll all have huge tolerance. And, uh, and that's why they can smoke this stuff without, you know, collapsing in a heap like I did. Uh, and I think I suffered a, a, a dose of severe nicotine poisoning because I know that one of the alkaloids in this stuff is uh, it, it has 20 times the nicotine content of the tobacco we use in the West. So I, I felt there like I was in some danger, but I've had a few others where I've been lying in bed in uh, in fetal position where I've made mistakes uh, one way or another, and and I've tried to use those mistakes to to make sure others didn't make the same mistake, uh, and they were part of my learning process in writing the the general sort of procedure at the front of the book to adopt. Uh, the Ten Commandments of Safer Drug Use to adopt for all drugs, and in the specific for each of the specific drugs, I've, uh, I've been able to integrate my lessons and my mistakes into the the information I've provided there. So yeah, I've had a few traumatic and horrendous experiences, but uh, luckily I'm still here. Salvia divinorum uh, is a 
you know some people call it a psychedelic which 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 it sort of is if you if you if you take it's a plant from uh, mexico if you chew the leaves like the mexicans do in that region of mexico you'll have a, a sort of headspace and a, a manageable experience now what happened when it was popularized in, in by western culture was uh, the molecule solvinorna was extracted from the plant and then it was sprayed on some other plant matter and smoked. So you had this 40 times, 100 times the strength of the original solvent, salvia divinorum. And, uh, you know, people would smoke this and, uh, and immediately have the salvia experience, which only lasts five minutes. Uh, but for those five minutes, I, I I went to hell and back. It was the first time I had it was, was, was here at home. And I got this shiny packet from the head shop, and, and you know, so this, it was intense, but I had really no idea what it was doing. So I smoked it and out in the garden, because I, I don't smoke, so I don't smoke in the house. And I took one step into the kitchen to come back into my office, and Kansas went bye-bye. And suddenly I realised... I'm going somewhere. This isn't, you know, this this isn't a sort of cannabinoid. You know what the hell is going on? And I managed to crawl back into this office on my hands and knees, and sort of get up. And I was thinking, I had an inkling to find out what 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 I'd had, but I couldn't because I was being sucked out of my body uh, by something up there in, in the air and. All the sharp edges were sharp. Everything was colourful, and and uh, I remember maroon colour and green, and everything was threatening. It wasn't a benign sort of um, hallucination, if you like. It was a threatening, dysphoric hallucination, and I felt like I was sort of being pulled uh, hard in you know in one particular direction, uh, and it was terrifying, and. Uh, you know, I, I was, and, and I didn't know I was going to come back. I mean, that was one of the worst feelings for me. Was this, have a, you know, is this it now? Am I, am I stuck like this forever? And I had no way of knowing because I hadn't done any research on on this thing. Um, so that that was absolutely horrendous. And then I tried it a second time, uh, months later, uh, because I thought. Maybe it was all shock because I hadn't done the research. Maybe if I did it in the sort of Terence McKenna, McKenna route and had it uh, in a darkened room uh, and, and I knew what was coming, it wouldn't be like that. Uh, especially if I'm going to write about this stuff. I've done, you know, I can't just be flimsy about it. So I did it again and, and you know, oh, my God, it was the same experience of being, you know, being sucked out of this reality and thinking, am I going to get back and sort of making deals with myself? I'll never do this again. It was just, it was that terrifying. Um, and that's uh, Salvi Divinorum. So, um, you know, I've got a little story as well uh, from, uh, for, with someone else with Salvi Divinorum. Um, I was... I was in a head shop because in the really early days, this stuff was sold in shops in the UK, these research chemicals called head shops. And I got in for some stimulant or other. And as I waited to get served, there was this, this young kid, maybe 18 or 19, uh, uh, getting served. And he was I, don't know, I could overhear him talking to the to the, the seller, behind, the vendor behind the counter. And he said, oh, I want to have a blast. I want to have a blast. And the guy behind the counter was saying to him, 
uh, it's not for human consumption, sir. Because the way they got around the law was they would sell these chemicals not for human consumption, so they weren't selling a drug. They were selling for something for you to test and play with as a as an academic. <laughs> That's how the law was subverted. So he wasn't helping this kid out, and the kid had salvia divinorum in his hand, and, and I could smell that it had a drink, and, and he had his mates outside. And I had this sort of vision of... This, this lad's going to get this uh, salvia. They're going to go and smoke it in the middle of Manchester, which is a major city. And they're going to have this out-of-body experience and, and next to a main road, potentially, and they're going to kill themselves. So I felt compelled to intervene. And um, I tried to explain this to, 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 to this person. I said, so you don't want this, but have this instead. Now, there, there was this... Uh, this research chemical stimulant, Gorgane, it was called, like cocaine. Now, it's a terrible idea, you know, giving somebody a stimulant when they've been drinking, but I was looking at the balance of risk here, uh, you know, which was more likely to keep the keep these three kids alive. And I thought, well, they'll, they'll, they'll probably get away with it. We'll get away with it with this, but the salvia is is uh, in the lap of the gods whether these are going to survive. So off they went with the with the with the Gorgane and the, 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 the guy behind the counter said, are you, a, are you his dad or something? You're a good Samaritan. I said, well, I had to do it because, you know, he knew. Uh, 20 seconds later, the kid comes back into the the shop and he described it to his mates and his mates thought the salvia sounded a smashing idea. So they went out with the, the salvia. You can't win them all. Now, I don't know what happened to those three Three, three individuals, whether uh, anything happened uh, untoward or whether they were okay. I hope they were okay, but, uh, you know, you just don't know. And that's set and setting, isn't it? Classic set and setting. If you're going to have a, an experience like that, go to a safe place, and they, they clearly weren't going to do that. So Salvia, yeah, uh, that, was, that was, and I think it is for most people, an absolutely horrific experience. Well, I I tried it once, but I'm not sure I got a a big dose. I tried to get a big dose, but uh, I I only did it once. But I had a it, it wasn't a, a horrible experience. I didn't leave my body or anything like that. It felt more like a it felt like a when you take a weak dose of of smoking DMT. It felt almost like that. I kind of only did it that time because I thought, oh, this is this is not so strong, so I, I lost interest. It's probably one of those those drugs like uh, the cannabinoids that get stronger and stronger as time went went on. I mean, originally, you know, I saw notice the package were five x. That's five times the strength of the um, the original plant. Whereas, you know, twelve months later, I was actually seeing packets that were 50 and 60 times the strength of the original plant uh so obviously what they're trying to do there is give more more bang for the book <laughs> which which is fine you know you don't you don't want that with something like salvia divinorum it would have been nice to have a low dose like you had and have an experience that you could manage but i think i probably came late to the party and you were earlier to the party and you probably had this stuff before before they started going crazy with the with this salvinorum A because you know at the time of this this was I took this it was really popular on YouTube you'd see people put in videos of them 
having these horrible experiences on YouTube. Um, and I'm sort of, I've watched a few of them and I'm sort of thinking, yeah, yeah, you're not, you're not in a very good shape. <laughs> I'm just imagining myself and what I must have been like uh, when I was uh, taking it. And it's not, it's a very sorry story. But leaving your body doesn't have to be, a, I mean, it is a scary feeling. I mean, because I've had it on, on uh, DMT, but uh, it's not scary. It's scary, but it's not like uh, it's a healthy experience. It's not with a psychedelic. And this is why I, I, I take exception to the divin, uh, salvia being called a psychedelic. It should have delirium in it because psychedelics like DMT, you, you're absolutely correct. You leave your body, but you're not, you're not threatened. You know, you're going into a different place, if you like, a different perspective. Whereas with salvia, it was it had this. It wasn't benign. It was it was it was dysphoric and, and it was frightening. And you were going somewhere that you sort of instinctively knew wasn't it wasn't what you wanted to be. And it had this edge to it which was sinister. Uh, and it was definitely there. And that's what made it. You know, it's not. You know, you had the visuals and everything, which, if it had it been sort of DMT, would have been sensational. But because it wasn't DMT, it was uh, Salvinorum A. Uh, it was far from from pleasant, and it was frightening because there was this sinister edge in play uh, that that you couldn't put your finger on, but was there, and it, it felt like you've been sucked into a a sort of a hostile environment rather than into a benign ride. So can you talk a bit about how your book is structured? Yeah. Um, what, I, what I did was I decided, well, I'll have four sections. I'll have an intro, I'll have the chemicals, I'll have the botanicals, and then finally I'll have the general welfare. And in the first section, the sort of introduction, it's it, it assumes nothing because people really don't know anything. The public doesn't know anything really about drugs, so you can't make assumptions about knowledge. So it starts with sort of general rules of, not rules, but a procedure on, you know, if you haven't got, you know, if you're in a rush, they just apply these 10 steps to your drug taking. Know the onset time. Know the dose. Learn the dose. Know the dur- just basics like that. It's a sort of 10 step. And you've got how to use a drug testing kit because it's it's really easy. It's really easy. But I didn't think, I, I had no idea it was easy until I actually did it. Uh, how the drugs are classified. What are the different types of drugs? What are the different ways of taking the drugs? Uh, you know, what 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 is chemsex? How does that work? Uh, and, and stuff like that, the sort of general introductory information for, for all drug users. That's the first section. The second section is the chemical journey, and that's got all the different chemicals, and they're organized by by classification. So we've got psychedelics, uh, stimulants, uh, anxiolytics and sedatives, uh, intoxicating depressants, dissociatives, uh, cannabinoids, nootropics, and so on. So, And they're all organized, and, and then... Each each uh, each drug is described with all the dose information and so on for the specific drug, and then a, a personal experience report of well an intro to some background to the drug, and then the experience report of what it was like for me after say five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, and so on, and what it was like the next day. So that's in place for every every chemical, 
as, as uh, categorized under the, their own uh, uh, psychedelic stimulant, so on. Third section is botanicals. And again, the botanicals are organized in exactly the same way, psychedelics, stimulants, sedatives, and so on. And the same information for each of the each of the botanicals, which would be seeds, plant matter, roots, uh, nuts, whatever it happens to be. And, and they're all listed in, in the third section and described in, in the third section. The fourth section is... Is, is largely about the welfare of the drug user, not 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 just the safety. So it's it's got stuff on you know what what, what do you do if you're addicted? Uh, or what if you're with someone who's got an overdose? You know what are you going to do? And um, give some information there. And the law, if you're arrested, what 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 should you be thinking? And what in different countries, what rights have you got? Uh, and drugs to drug tourism. Uh, then there's a sort of section on uh, drug terminology, a dictionary, um, and so on and so forth. So this, this section got all, you know, what to do if you've if you've got a mandatory drugs test to take? Can you can you avoid your drug use being detected? Uh, so we've got all general welfare information in the fourth fourth in the fourth section. So you know it's a sort of intro, chemicals, botanicals, general welfare, and that's. That's how it's organized. And where can people get it? And do you have a website? Yeah, it's available on every Amazon. Uh, so what, whatever your local Amazon is around the world, it's it's there. Uh, and it's on. It's in most of the major online retailers. And it's got its own website. It's drugusersbible.com. You can have the book called The Drug Users Bible. The website's just drugusersbible.com. And uh, on, the, on the website, there's... There's a lot of sample pages, and, and and to be fair, on the Amazon uh, page for the book, uh, I've, I've, they've activated it so you can actually see certain pages inside the book uh, itself to see how it's how it's set out and what the content's going to be. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. My pleasure. And I think I said last time this, you were my first interviewer ever uh, when, when the. Uh, the Honest Drug book uh, first came out in 2017, and I'd never done an interview at all before that point. And uh, and it was a pleasure to do then, and it's been a, a pleasure to do again. So thank you very much. Go to drugusersbible.com to check it out. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Yes, on the day this episode airs, it's the 5th of November 2020. Guy Fox is the best known participant in the gunpowder plot. Its object was to blow up the palace at Westminster in reprisal for the increased oppression of Roman Catholics in England. But the plot was discovered and Guy Fawkes was arrested and put to death. The British celebration of Guy Fawkes Day, November 5th, includes fireworks, masked children begging a penny for the guy, and the burning of little effigies of the conspirator. These days, Guy Fawkes has become an anti-hero, and with the help of the comic and film V for Vendetta, the Guy Fawkes mask has become synonymous with rebellion and anarchy, which is the liberation of the individual from slavery.
And uh, as a person suffering from some sort of contrarian illness, Guy Fawkes has always been a hero to me. More so the archetype or symbol that he has become than the actual person he was. There is a speech in the film uh, V for Vendetta that I really enjoy as it has aged like fine wine, especially considering the madness of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. I'm not sure if I played this little clip before. I might have, but it's so good, so I'll play it again. Our story begins, as these stories often do, with a young up-and-coming politician. He's a deeply religious man and a member of the Conservative Party. He's completely single-minded and has no regard for the political process. The more power he attains, the more obvious his zealotry and the more aggressive his supporters become. Eventually, his party launches a special project in the name of national security. At first, it's believed to be a search for biological weapons and it's pursued without regard to its cost. However, the true goal of this project is power, complete and total hegemonic domination. The project, however, ends violently. But the efforts of those involved are not in vain, for a new ability to wage war is born from the blood of one of the victims. Imagine a virus, the most terrifying virus you can, and then imagine that you and you alone have the cure. But if your ultimate goal is power, how best to use such a weapon? It's at this point in our story that along comes a spider. He is a man seemingly without a conscience for whom the ends always justify the means, and it is he who suggests that their target should not be an enemy of the country, but rather the country itself. Three targets are chosen to maximize the effect of the attack, a school, a tube station, and a water treatment plant. Several hundred die within the first few weeks. That Three Waters has, in fact, been contaminated. Authorities are attempting to control its deadly spread. Sent a wave of destruction throughout the underground. Fueled by the media, fear and panic spread quickly, fracturing and dividing the country until at last the true goal comes into view. Before the St Mary's crisis, no one would have predicted the results of the election that year. No one. And then not long after the election, lo and behold, a miracle. Some believed it was the work of God himself, but it was a pharmaceutical company controlled by certain party members that made them all obscenely rich. A year later, several extremists are tried, found guilty and executed while a memorial is built to canonize their victims. But the end result, the true genius of the plan was the fear. Fear became the ultimate tool of this government, and through it, our politician was ultimately appointed to the newly created position of High Chancellor. The rest, as they say, is history. But the end result, the true genius of the plan was the fear. I want to close with a song called Good by Akira de Don, featuring Yoko Willink. To check out more of his music, surf over to akiradedon.com or akiradedon.bandcamp.com. Freedom is in the mind. How do I deal with setbacks, failures, delays, defeat, or other disasters? I actually have a fairly simple way of dealing with these situations. It is actually one word to deal with all those situations. And that is good. 
This is actually something that one of my guys that worked for me pointed out to me. He would call me up or pull me aside with some major problem, some issue that was going on. And he'd say, boss, we got this and that and the other thing. And I'd look at him and I'd say, good. One day he was telling me about some issue that he was having. He said, I already know what you're going to say. And I said, well, what am I going to say? He said, you're going to say good. You're going to say good. Something is wrong and going bad. You always just look at me and say, good. Good. And I said, well, yeah. And I mean it. And that is how I feel. When things are going bad, there's going to be some good that's going to come from it. Oh, mission got canceled? Good. We can focus on another one didn't get the new high-speed gear we wanted, good. We can keep it simple. Didn't get promoted, good. More time to get better. Didn't get funded, good. We own more of the company. Didn't get the job you wanted, good. You can get more experience and build a better resume. You're gonna say good. You're gonna say good. Take 
take that problem. Take, take that issue. Take that problem and make it something good. Make it, make it something good. And bring that attitude to your team. Do. You go forward. You're going to say good. Thank you.